0: It is clear that this resolution lacks an understanding of or an embrace of the complexity of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the history and rights of the Jewish people as secure and sovereign in our ancestral homeland.
1: Why are you singling out this conflict amongst the many all over our globe?
0: This proposal is pure anti-Semitism.
2: If you vote against this resolution, History
1: will judge you. Because the people who lived apartheid South Africa, like Desmond Tutu, said I came to Palestine and it's worse than apartheid South Africa. It denies Palestinians equal rights with a myriad
2: of laws so racist in nature that the human rights watch describes Israel as an
1: apartheid state.
2: Why is Israel the only country that the world feels comfortable punishing?
1: What is behind this resolution?
0: People need equal rights. That's all it is. It's just saying Palestinians deserve the same equal rights as Israelis, and that's what this is. It's hard for me to believe
1: that we have even discussing this resolution that is going to create so much division.
2: Instead of isolating Israel, ask Ben and Jerries to build a factory in Gaza, a factory in the West Bank you know you got people who are making bombs and dropping them on black and brown people halfway across the globe and they take those same weapon systems and, and munitions and they bring them back here and they use them on black and brown people here it's the same thing we have a water problem we have environmental issues we have serious financial decisions to make as a community and now you're adding anti-semitism to the list we need to realize that jewish people lived in palestine in peace before all of this before this Uh, philosophy of Zionism. This has changed because of this concept of oppressing another people and we have to realize that unless the root cause of the problem is going to be addressed, uh, unfortunately nothing is is going to be
0: uh, resolved.
2: Welcome to ABC Cafe. I'm your host, Anthony Apodaca. The audio you heard at the top of the show was from a September 13, 2021 Burlington City Council meeting, where a resolution calling for justice and a peaceful end to the Palestine and Israel conflict was introduced by Ali Jing. The resolution outlines Israel's actions against the Palestinians, including the May 2021 attacks in Gaza, which killed 248 people, including 66 children. 280-plus illegal settlements in the West Bank, the denial of the Palestinian people to the right of self-determination, equality, property, water rights, personal dignity, security, and freedom of movement. It also noted the 2021 Human Rights Watch report accusing Israel of the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution, an accusation echoed by Israeli human rights group bet the resolution called for the city of Burlington to stand with the Palestinians by endorsing the Palestinian led nonviolent movement Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, which has three demands. First, ending the military occupation of all Arab lands and dismantling the separation wall. Second, recognizing the fundamental rights of the Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality. And third, respecting, protecting, and promoting. The rights of Palestinian refugees to their homes and properties as stipulated under UN Resolution 194. However, enough opposition had been built against this resolution that Ali Jing decided to withdraw it even before the meeting had begun, and after two and a half hours of public testimony, the city council voted to withdraw the resolution. Critics said that the resolution unfairly singled out Israel, That it was one sided, that it was anti Semitic, that BDS itself is fueled by anti-Semitism, that it ignores the crimes of Hamas, that it reduced a complicated situation to talking points and smears, that the real goal of BDS is the destruction of Israel, that movements like BDS inspire anti Semitic activities. Four rabbis penned a commentary in VT Digger before the meeting in which they wrote, The resolution's answer to the false accusations being made is for the city of Burlington to support the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, BDS, an organization with one guiding purpose the elimination of the State of Israel. Joining me in this episode are two of the four rabbis that pen that commentary, David Edelson and Jan Saltzman. Before we get started, I want to make it clear that I fully support BDS and the Burlington Resolution. However, I did not invite Rabbi Jan and Rabbi David on my show. In order to have a debate, I invited them on the show because I was truly curious about their position, and I think it's important to have conversations with people with whom we disagree. I gave them a lot of space to speak as I was earnestly trying to listen and figure out why they thought as they did. That said, I did disagree a lot with what the rabbis had to say. Some of it I was able to bring up in real time with them, but there is so much more to say on the topic. This is why I'll be doing a second part to this episode as a rejoinder. I'll be inviting one or two guests still to be announced to make the case why Burlington and other cities should support resolutions like this and address some of the comments you're about to hear. And without any further delay, here's my conversation with Rabbi Jan and Rabbi David. All right, I'm here with David Edelson and Jan Saltzman. Thank you so much for joining me on ABC Cafe. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. Um, so I wanted to talk with you because you penned a letter, uh, a commentary, with two other two other rabbis. You're both you're both rabbis um, in VT Digger, and I was explaining to David before we started recording, before you showed up, that you made the critical error of writing, <laughs> "We invite you to reach out to any one of us to discuss this further." So here we are discussing it further, um, and I just want to get your general take on um, what. Why did you pen it and just kind of give a little bit of background on your reaction to the Burlington Resolution? Which, um, And if you want to talk about that in any great detail, I'll just start off with opening the floor and let you speak
1: generally for a moment. Go ahead. Well, thank you for inviting us here. Um, We penned the letter because we felt that the resolution in Burlington, while we might agree with whole parts of it, the tone of it and some of the details of it, cross the line from being advocacy to being misrepresentations and put our communities at greater risk, which we already are. So, uh, it felt important to respond to that. Um, it was, it was particularly important to let people know that there is another way of looking at the same facts that is still progressive and still, um, Uh, deeply interested in human rights, but doesn't have the same strategy or the same uh, view of the whole thing. So that that's why I felt that way. Right.
0: We, uh, Ruach HaMakom, uh, signed on to the letter for reasons similar to what Rabbi David just said. Um, and we too had trouble with parts of the letter that we didn't, it wasn't a hundred percent support. We, we definitely skewed towards, um, more the left perspective. Um, and what was really troubling about the, the, um, the resolution was that it was uh, two things. One, it was incredibly one-sided, um, did not take any other actors in the whole situation to task for their role in why it's such a mess over there, and so that in, um, it was disingenuous kind of a, a of a proposal. Um, and secondly, Racha just we decided to be in solidarity with the other Jewish organizations. Um, even though we didn't, we weren't 100% signed on to what it was saying, we felt it was really important, especially in this opening throw to, to express solidarity. And from that effort, has resulted in unbelievable conversations, both between the organizations and within each organization. So by stepping out into this um, very public uh, our, um difficulty uh it it really helped all of us to listen to each other and talk to each other and get to know each other a whole lot more um so i guess yeah that's all i want to (laughs) say
2: so i want to talk about both of those things because i find them um so the first the first thing is what what you thought was one-sided or problematic about the resolution like specifically and then two what is from your point of view that all an alternative way of framing the situation um because the you know and it's, it's a commentary so i didn't expect you to like <laughs> provide the whole answer in the commentary but it, it made me curious reading it like i actually have you know uh so in the commentary you wrote uh the resolution is misleading a one-sided view positions israel as the sole impediment to peace and security um and it goes on to say the resolution's answer to this to the false accusations being made is for the city of Burlington to support BDS. So what about the, the resolution then specifically is problematic? And actually I have it, I have it here if you need a refresher. It's <laughs> yeah. okay.
1: So, um, well, I think Jan said it very well, that it, the situation over there is an incredibly complicated situation with long histories that are multiple and, and not simple on either side. And indeed, my own opinion is that the leadership of all the parties in the area benefit from the conflict continuing and that it supports leaders who are intransigent and who make their political stands on that very intransigence. And so by not holding the Palestinian leadership to any account as if they're just hapless victims of of the situation, uh, Doesn't lead to peace because it's not an accurate assessment of the problem. Um, And so when it's only like Israel does all these terrible things and the poor Palestinians are just victims, that's such a oversimplification, flattening reduction of the actual history there that... Without getting into arguing through history, it just presents itself as there's one bad player in here. And if that were fixed, peace would break out and the sun would shine. And that is so far from any reality that and it feels to me that spin on it, if it's either rooted in anti-Semitism or it is. Built on assumptions that may not even be fully aware of that are anti Semitic, in which the Jews somehow have a lot more power and control than we possibly do as a very small number of people in the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you look at the situation as a family system, the family system has had a number of players over the millennia. You could even stretch back that far. But even if you don't stretch back that far, The the woundedness on all sides is so profound and also in some ways it exists in a shadow. People don't even know that they're walking around necessarily with pain in their gut that drives the passion for their position. And so the situation is not the situation. It's hundreds of situations. It is my uh, sister's former in-laws who were refugees from Syria. We don't talk about the 700,000 jewish arabs that had to leave their homes that they are in exile we only hear about the akba the palestinians who had to leave their homes and so there's this there's this uh, concentric rings that continue to valence after valence after valence that um, continues to vibrate through perspective if you look at it with a family systems model you wouldn't want to say oh you're the reason we're getting divorced right that that actually would never be the mm-hmm. right thing to say about a relationship especially a long-term relationship especially a relationship that dates back at least over 150 years that has gone through unbelievable turmoil the end of the ottoman empire the way that the british screwed everything up and the holocaust so People are coming, speaking out of their place of woundedness, and until we can really work with each other on that level and really hear each other's woundedness, no one side exists. It's incredibly complex, but it's not just complex rationally, like where are you going to draw that line? It's complex because everybody hurts. And to have a one-sided analysis of why the system is working is in disingenuous and not, it doesn't honor the integrity of the whole problem.
2: So I would, uh, I, you know, I I appreciate that perspective. I'd like to push back a little bit from how I'm looking at this and ask a couple more questions along those lines, which is, I would question the, the validity of a, applying a family relationship model to a nuclear armed nation state or nation states of any kind. And when we're talking, it. It seems to me that with that analysis, you're sort of reducing state power to complex interpersonal relationships. And what we're what we're talking about, and I think what BDS is getting at, is critiquing Israeli policy, that is in a very, very specific way. So you're probably both aware of um, uh, uh, Israeli uh, human rights organizations, B'Tselem, mm-hmm. who basically describe the Israeli state as one built upon Jewish supremacy. Um, the human, I actually printed this because I was I really wanted to, but that's the whole Human Rights Watch uh, Threshold Cross report that they published this year. And I, there's parts of it I wouldn't mind reading at some point during this, but it's it, it doesn't beat around the bush and it basically describes Israel as a state built on Jewish domination. And it goes very specifically through state policies where you have people within Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories that have two sets of rights. They're very clear that it's the, crime, the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. And my question is, how does that factor in? Because I, I want to talk about two things. How do you process that, those types of reports and those types of criticisms, which are not Israel made a mistake or whatever? I mean, these are, these are very clear, consistent policy decisions over decades, Um, How do you reconcile that? And then let's talk about the one-sidedness as well folded into that because I think the point of BDS, as I see it, is not necessarily to – it's to withdraw our specific support for Israel based on those crimes. Our tax money is funding that. We would like to stop funding that and stop – I would like personally – to stop participating in the crimes outlined by the Human Rights Watch. I'm not participating in the crimes of Hamas. I'm not participating in the crimes of Hezbollah, right? So we can say that they, they have committed crimes, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is correct what we have control over, which is our actions in supporting
1: Israel's crimes. Well, sure. And I don't think we disagree about a lot of those policies. I think Ptselem is a particular organization with a particular point of view. And even when it said it's a, it is apartheid, it said you would have to get rid of the racial connotations of that. It's not like South Africa. And I believe that in this country, when people use the term apartheid, they are using it to conjure up a kind of racial settler, colonialist thing, which is the language that's being used as well. So to me, apartheid is when B'Tselem uses it, and I may or may not agree with, I don't agree with it, but I see their point. But I also think that's different than the way the term ends up being used here, which is not a technical term about legal systems, but a condemnation of what you said, crimes against humanity. And I don't think that is... Uh, as widespread and I certainly don't think the way it was presented there uh is is accurate and plus sorry, sorry when you yeah, say
2: presented there at or- the
1: meeting in town oh, okay, the, okay so that's all I was talking about yeah okay so so you have a situation here where you have occupied territories that's for sure um they're occupied in part because neither side has found a way to come to a resolution that they can both agree to that's and they couldn't before they still can't So you have a situation in which to not have two legal systems would be to give citizenship and annexation of the West Bank and Gaza, which is very much not what the Palestinian leadership and I believe Palestinian people are wanting in any way, shape or form. It's not what I want. Um, And so you have two separate situations because you have two you have a sovereign nation and you have occupied territory under military control. Now I don't like that either. I wish that would stop. I have been my whole life when I'm over there protesting for the end of that occupation. So it's not the occupation. That's the, the thing that we, and I don't want to speak for Jan, but I, I don't think that's the issue that we disagree about. The, the issue is when you start name calling um, it doesn't provide. Well, let's
2: stick to the resolution, okay? Because I I don't know what you mean by. I mean, I certainly don't name call, and I don't think Wafik or Ashley Smith were name call. I I mean, what do you mean by name calling, and who was who named? I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the details. I'm trying to just stick to the the resolution that was proposed, and I think you know I don't you- speak for everybody in BDS of some. No, goofballs or name calling, <laughs>
1: making ethnic well, no, slurs I or whatever—that's not on I, me. Well, I heard Wafik on this show call it genocide. There are no reputable human rights lawyer or anybody that claims that what's going on there is anything like genocide. So, if calling somebody genocidal isn't name calling, I don't know what's a worse name to call somebody. And and I think apartheid. Mm-hmm. While you can, we can have an adult, rational argument about what that line is. I don't feel in the way it's used in these moments. It's being used as a term, an a, a term of a technical term. It's being used as an accusation, and that's what I mean by name calling. And so I think that's its own that's its own issue, like how we're going to talk about things if we're starting off by I, I'm not going in there and saying Palestinians are terrorists. There are some Palestinians who are terrorists. Israelis have suffered at the hands of terrorism. Uh, but that's not a way to start a conversation or even to work on a resolution because you immediately put people in their corners. Now, I think if we could talk about what – well, and I want to say before that, that the funding that – I hear you on the funding the U.S. gives to Israel. And I, that's something we can debate. Um, I would say, though, that the notion that somehow the U.S. gives that to Israel out of some kind of Jewish power or guilt – is to miss the U.S.'s uh, motivations, which we may or may not agree with as progressive people. But the U.S. funds Israel as a military ally in the area that's also a democracy. And they also fund, if you add what they give to Jordan and Egypt together, it's what they give to Israel. So you have a situation where the whole area is being funded out of American security interests. Um, and frankly, one of the things that bothers me is I don't, I mean, Israel doesn't depend on that money. So if you succeeded with BDS and they cut that money, it wouldn't change any policies over there. It would mean that U S people who are progressive would feel less implicit or complicit, which I understand. Yes, sir. All right, Speaking yes, sir.
2: <laughs> but, hey, calm down. Oh. Someone's
1: here. That's the problem. okay. My poodle cor- cornered the, the meter reader today, so I lived through this this morning.
2: <laughs> so, when you were talking, I wanted to go back. I, I hear you on the. I, I can't, obviously, re- I recorded the interview with Wafik months ago, and I remember talking about the eth- ethnic cleansing. I don't remember specific calls for genocide, but I, you know, and I don't want to get into it. It wasn't the, a call for genocide, it was no, a claim I mean, of call, genocide. The yeah. Of, yeah, the claim of genocide. I don't want to
1: misrepresent what he said.
2: Yeah, obviously he (laughs) didn't. I think I would have remembered if someone came on the show and called for genocide. Um, And I don't want to get into the, the nitty gritty, but I mean, when you have Israeli prime ministers and foreign officials referring to going into Gaza to, quote, mow the lawn, like, I don't know what else to call it. Like, that's, you know, we have um testimonies and testimonies of you know IDF soldiers talking about this the insane use of firepower that they subjected the city of Gaza to like I don't know what else to call that really um but or, I wanted to ask you a specific question um do you do you or do you not agree that Israel is an apartheid state that it has one set of rules and laws for Palestinians in Israel and in the occupied territory and one set of laws for, for, uh, for the Jewish, the Jewish citizens. So
0: again, I want to talk about the word apartheid because it does bring up issues of uh, South America, South Africa. And during its time in South Africa, someone who was black, could not hardly go to school, go to medical school, go to law school, could not work in the public sector, could not serve as doctors and lawyers and judges and teachers that is not the situation in Israel. There are absolutely discriminatory practices in terms of giving or not giving housing permits to people uh, who are Palestinian. There's absolutely discrimination, and life is really hard because of checkpoints. There's no denying that the situation is awful, but it's not apartheid. And this is where, so when people call somebody a Nazi, I respond with the retort of, don't you dare dilute what that word means. Mm-hmm. The, the word apartheid is an emotional word. It, and it, when it describes a society that uh, does not allow its, uh, a segment of its population based on their race to not participate in civil life, then you've got apartheid. When you have a situation mm -hmm. where it is possible and in fact is true that people of a variety of backgrounds serve in a variety of roles in Israel, then you don't have apartheid. You have discrimination. You have policies that keep people living in squalor. You have situations where um, there are people in Israel who do not like Arabs. You have people in Israel who are highly racist. We also have to remember that Israel itself is not populated by white people. Jews, by the way, come in a variety of colors. And there's also Christians, and there's Copts, and there's all, there's like, there's Druze, there's all kinds of people that live in the state of Israel very few of whom are white. And so we want to be careful about the word apartheid. Mm-hmm. It does not describe the actual situation. It There are parts of what is going on there that is racially based. Absolutely. And that is the part that many of us, Rabbi David and I, we're all working hard to eradicate that. I don't think there's a progressive or a liberal Religious leader in the Jewish world that actually supports the settlements. We certainly don't support what happened on the last day of Sukkot, where uh, settlers attacked an Arab village. I mean that's unacceptable, and so part of the 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 emotional response to something like BDS is the Jewish tradition since. 586 BCE works with Torah to make it say exactly the opposite of what it says. And the reason we do that is because we don't like to want to become like the people who are oppressing us. So we have a ridiculously long tradition of taking what is harsh and flipping it upside down so that it embodies um, qualities of justice and ethics and morality. When the Jewish enterprise is attacked for not being an ethical or moral people, you are going up against a lot of ignorance about what exactly is a Jew. Uh, And so please never, ever, ever think, that I support what the Israeli government is doing vis-a-vis the Palestinian situation. And it is really, really important to also understand the other players there. The Palestinians, there's Hamas, there's Hezbollah, there's Iran, there's all these other players that are also pushing the narrative that they want to see. And so the simplicity of a BDS proposal is just that's the problem it's really simple. And people who look at complex problems long for simple answers, simple explanations. But the situation is not simple. And to call one side the bad guys and the other side the good guys, or to call one side the oppressors and the other side the oppressed, creates a simplistic model of what is going on there. It also ignores the over 200 organizations that are working on the ground in Israel and Palestine who are working towards real economic and social justice issues. So when we look at... If you look at the United States, you would only see the president and, and Congress. No, that's not what goes on in the United States. There's, when a flood happens, everybody comes out and helps each other. That's exactly what's going on in Israel. If you look at Kibbutz Lotan, if you look at some of the um, efforts by women in black and, and, and Parents Circle, on and, on and on and on and on, there is an inordinate amount of popular support for resolution between the two peoples all you hear are the headlines of the government and that is also what makes the bds proposal so problematic is that you're reducing an entire complex situation into those who've got the biggest voices and not at all looking at the healing that is and reconciliation work that's going on on the ground And so that was our problem with the BDS proposal. Not that what they were saying wasn't true, but it was just one-sided and deeply, profoundly one-sided.
2: All right. So I want to ask, there's three things that the BDS movement, um, and I just want to ask because Mm -hmm. so the the first, there's three, ending its occupation and colonization of all Arab lands and dismantling the wall. By all Arab lands, it's specifically, refer- is specifically talking about the Golan Heights, Syrian Golan Heights. That's not what it says, though. I'm looking at the BDS website. Right, right. No, well, but all <laughs>
1: Arab lands can be defined in all... No, but I
2: mean, that's what it says, international... Right, on the web- website, it, yes. On the, on, the, on the website. Yes. So, I mean, it's not specified, and it wasn't specified in the resolution. They, right. They just put the, the bold. Right. Uh, so I'm just clarifying that right, right, right. they don't mean... I'm actually not sure if there's other Arab lands that they
1: could even be talking about. Well, they might be talking about <laughs> lands owned by Arabs that left in 1945. That, right. <clears throat> so they are talking about that often. So
2: if, if it's ending the occupation, do you support that? Like, would you support the call for... I guess my question is, why, what is the problem with calling for, like, an immediate end to the siege in Gaza, for example?
1: Um, Hamas is the problem with that, and that if ending that siege didn't result in more violence, then I think of course that's true. But it's not just uh, America, other organizations really have trouble with goods and services going into going into Gaza and being, used for other purposes than they're intended. And that's a real problem. That's not a problem I can fix or you can fix. Also, I think there's a difference between in the occupation in the West Bank or in the occupation in the Golan Heights. Those aren't the same situation. So ending, so that is oversimplifying once again. Am I for ending the occupation in the West Bank? Of course I am, if there is a peace agreement and it's not just creating a power vacuum that will be filled as it was in Gaza, by the most radical elements, which will inevitably just lead to more war and more fighting and more suffering by both Palestinians and Israelis. So strategy matters. And it's like virtue signaling to say, I'm against the occupation, if, especially if you don't have, well, then what are you for and how would you possibly get there, given the current leadership of both sides? So I, I don't see how that happens in any way that isn't violent. And as a Jewish person, when I hear from the river to the sea, Palestine will be sea, what I hear is a threat of genocide in the other direction. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of it, but I hear it as a threat. Because what does Palestine, by the way, a name that the Romans gave the area after they had utterly destroyed the Jewish state as a way of destroying Jewish identity there. So how does um, saying that Uh, Palestine from the river to the sea will be free. How does that promote peace? It promotes feeling good about something, but I don't see like what happens the next day, what happens the next year? Is there any kind of viable government structure? Is there security? Is there trust? What will happen? So far, it seems that what's happened is incredibly more violence because there's much less violence between Israel and the West Bank with the Palestinian Authority than with Gaza from where they withdrew unilaterally, without any uh, uh, negotiations or settlement.
2: Well, we'll probably disagree on that, just because I don't think you can really call it—I mean, yes, there's not Israel Israeli troops there, but it withdrawing when you're still basically having the whole place, you know— Hemmed un- him by un- Israel un- and under- Egypt— yeah. I mean, I mean, majority, like what, like ninety nine percent, Israel. There's a small sliver where Egypt controls the border with Gaza, but the you know Israel controls the coastline yeah, and, the, of and the whole eastern border. So let's go to the second one, which is recognizing the fundamental rights of Arab Palestinians, citizens of Israel, to full equality. Um, one fifth of Israel citizens are Palestinians who remained inside the armistice lines after 1948. Um, They are subject to a system of racial discrimination enshrined in more than fifty laws that impact their life. So that's the second demand. That one seems pretty harmless to me, guys.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't think it's pretty accurate. Okay, what you don't think?
2: Okay, so we don't think it's accurate.
1: Well, I think is there are uh, so one of the problems, and actually, the current government is working on this, that one of the problems in Israeli society like it was here, is that a lot of benefits that people get are tied to military service, mm-hmm. right? So like the GI Bill and my father, we, every house we ever had growing up was because he was in the military, right? And, and of course, there's redlining. So African-Americans didn't get the same benefits and, and that's its own issue. Yeah. So knowing all that in Israel, a lot of things are tied to military service. So that's already a problem. If you're a Palestinian and you don't either don't want to serve in the military or feel like that's a moral conflict for you, then you are passing up a lot of rights that are tied to military service. Right now, there's, they're working on a bill so that it's tied to national service that isn't military. And that would change a lot of those things. Now, to me, that's a, a real solution to a real issue that has to be addressed. And so I totally agree that discriminatory laws are wrong. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree with most of those laws. But I also think that overlooks the fact that Palestinians that are Israeli citizens um, also have, you know, they, they vote, they have parties, they have court, they, they're they in the same courts, they're in the same medical care system, which is very different than the Palestinians under occupation. So, So that's where I think that already starts to mush some of that around. And so what are you saying there cuz are you calling for the end of occupation or you know it, it you're you're putting a whole lot of things in one envelope called BDS.
2: Well, um you know I don't want to keep going into all the the nuances of of every detail here on that piece. Um so we'll just leave it at that one. I think the basic gist of it is full full equal citizen status yeah. for for everyone living under the under is is in israel proper is
1: that I, I
0: totally support that and that's the goal but i think what's really is important is that we those of us who sit safely in the united states can say that but if you are on the ground there what's primary is safety and knowing that um, in this last round, you know, what was a close to five thousand rockets were, were propelled towards Israel, all over Israel, uh, uh, for the in a much more extensive range than they've ever had before. Um, different populations in the state of Israel were experiencing the terror of of, of shelters um, and of bombs, and the and the Palestinians were. uh, uh, experiencing the bombs that were, were faulty and blowing up in their own backyards. And, and, and so none of this is possible unless you have a partner with whom to really agree to take the toys away from the boys. You have to have disarmament. You have to have trust. You have to make sure that if I promise to do X, Y, Z, you promise not to throw bombs at me. You have to get, you have, you, you, who's the you? The Palestinians, as I'm painting a broad brush, have to stop accepting money from Iran, whose express anti-Semitic program is to wipe out the Jews. So it's not, it's so, again, it's really, really complex. And one of the things that we know from, trying to solve complex problems is that you start with the ones that are easy to solve and you begin to build trust that if I say I'm going to bring a water pipe to your village and I do bring that water pipe to your village, which you deserve, then the next round of negotiation is far more probable to be um, successful. We're starting at the top, which is the wrong place to start you have to build up the trust and there is no way that the general israeli public is going to say yes to anything unless they have reliable assurances that they will not be bombed out of their homes and so the and this is this is the deep truth we, most israelis want to end the occupation that has been borne out by poll after poll after poll. Most Israelis want to take their kids to school and help, help their kids with homework and, and form amazing bands and go to the, uh, the, go to the restaurant. And we have to remember that Israel is far more like a European si- uh, country than it is an American country, and that's something that's culturally very interesting. The point is, is that no one will make a, a deal unless there is assurance of safety. And that if we can if we can keep that in mind, then all of the slogans that fit nicely on a banner that you use to walk down the street, if if you're not saying that on your banner, then you are and this is on all sides, then you're acting in an inflammatory way. And so it's just I think what we've conveyed over this hour is how complex the situation is and that it's human beings who are acting out of their pain and their fear and their wounds and their triggers, et cetera, and their own personal history, the country's history. Um, And if you don't have an assurance of safety, you don't have anything.
2: So I I have to go on record to say that I I, I do disagree with the, I, I believe you that the fear is real and I, I've heard people tes- te- give testimony to that. So I don't discount that, that feeling or that, that sentiment, but I do have to say that um, I don't personally see, and I've, I've read commentary on this as well, the motivation, except for just blind revenge. If you would, if, if, if the Israel stopped the, the siege, for example, in Gaza that immediately, they would just truck in a bunch of weapons and declare war on like a nuclear state. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but we'll have, to, I'm just going to leave it there. I just wanted to say, say that piece of it. Well, if you'd but, like to respond real quick. Well, I fine. just want
1: to say, I think there's evidence that that's exactly what might happen. So I think, and I think from the Israeli voters point of view, when I think about the wall at the American border and the the propaganda about, Oh, there's all this violence coming over the border, which most of us were like, what are you talking about? The reason that separation wall exists in Israel is because when uh, uh, Yasser Arafat said no to whatever the deal was that was offered to him and he said no to it, it then turned into an uprising which was mostly terrorism against civilians and stabbings at bus stations and blowing up at cafes and the Israeli voters demanded that stop. So there the wall that went up was a response to terrorism. Now the great tragedy is that the wall actually worked. That's the great tragedy for me as a progressive, is that they called for a wall. I was against the wall. This is terrible. And then the blowing, the bombings and the stabbing stopped. So in the Israeli political mind, that wall achieved a purpose of keeping them safe. So when they vote, and this also includes Palestinian voters who often vote for uh Non-Arab parties, not Arab majority parties, because they also want the security, because violence coming across the border doesn't just affect one group, it affects everybody over there. So I think there's a, so my response to that is simply that I think that weapons do, will, and with Iran as the sponsor, absolutely will pour in there. And then the Israeli government would have to answer to why there's all these new weapons taking, hitting their towns. And as politicians, you're worried about your voters. Now, that's one of the problems with occupation. Those aren't my voters. These are my voters. But I think if you ask, why do Israelis, unless you think that all the Jewish Israelis are some kind of evil, racist, genocidal maniacs, why are they voting a certain way? It's because they feel that's what gives them safety. Now, right. I don't want vote the same way. Just turn your mic a little bit towards your mouth. Oh, there. sorry about that. Yeah, no
2: problem. Yeah. Yeah, so— It's it's funny because I read what you're saying to be the opposite in some ways. So like it seems to me that the assumption that the Palestinian population of Gaza would just want to unleash holy hell on the whole entire state of Israel.
0: No, the people. No, would the, not. The, the, the Hamas does. The, the people that, who rule it. Right, but
2: why? That. But again, and this goes back to like, why is Hamas even in power? It's a it is a response to to policies itself Uh, and so you know i don't i don't know what the motivation would be for hamas to do that for the people to support hamas doing that it doesn't make sense to me right like and and so the assumption has to be that they are just um the assumption has to be that they're irrational that they're not looking out for their well being
1: in any capacity. That Hamas is suicide. not looking out no, for the well being of the citizens. I think that's 100%
0: true. And it also, you have to look <laughs> at what their elections are like. Are their opposition like, yeah. parties allowed to run? So I can, in Egypt, they have elections too. In Saudi Arabia, they have elections too. In the, in the, un, in the former Soviet Union, they have mm-hmm. elections too. But you better not be an opposition party or you'll end up in jail. So when we, we, again, I I join you in being careful about using the word democracy because uh, we see all over the world a pretense of democratic practices that in fact do not allow opposition parties, do not allow the, the power of the press to reveal the insidious background noise that moves one candidate or one party forward. We barely have it in this country. And so again, we want to be, I'm always making the distinction between what the leaders of a country will do, Who are involved in a complex web of influence with other countries, who are in their back room and in their fore room, and what the people want. And we poll after poll after poll have revealed that the people who are actually living there are tired of war, and the leaders of the countries cannot be trusted in making peace. And that includes the the, the right-wing Israelis. I'm not just talking about Hamas and I'm not just talking about Iran. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is a toxic environment that all of the leaders are playing out. And the ability of the people to change their leadership model and change who are their leaders that is the proof of whether there's a democracy there or not, and at this moment, the people who are in the occupied territories, the Palestinians who are caught, do not have a way to challenge their governors. And we've seen, we just saw this not very long ago, where the opposition party in in um, with the Palestinians were like, he was put in jail, you know. So this is not a democracy. This is this is a group of leaders and again on the, all the sides who are not representing the needs of the people who just want to go buy a pizza.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm not I didn't mean to imply that Hamas is, you know, some kind of benevolent, you know, government. I'm just simply stating that they have actually in situations shown restraint and shown a practical side that I think it is simply wrong and I'm not necessarily certain you're doing this to suggest that they are only capable of behaving as evil, irrational people. and Because that, that, that is not correct. And to recognize the context that they are a response to a specific historical situation.
0: I think they're a response to their own leaders and the insidious nature of um, the, the Arab world in the past developing an anti-Semitic trope. Um, we know that the Elders of Zion, which was a false pamphlet that was produced by a Russian, uh, the, the Russian oligarch. I can't remember who, who wrote it. Um, it's one of the most widely wet, read books in the Arab world, and interestingly enough, in Japan, I yes. learned that that was an odd thing. So, the Elders of Zion is uh, this is where we get the Jews are running the world kind of idea, and they must all be killed. Um, this is a still a ridiculously highly popular book that's being read. In the Arab world, and it funnels, and again, if you look at post-World War II, how the geography, the geopolitical map radically changed at the end of World War mm-hmm. II, it wasn't only about the Holocaust it was also about the, uh, you know, it was the residue of the dis, uh, dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire. It's the the disaster that the British brought upon that by by slicing and dicing between tribal lands to make different. Anti- I mean, the whole thing is nuts, right? And the 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 experience of the early Jewish state to have the UN have observers. Walking around and not seeing the trenches being built was suddenly something that the mess of the world, like the Jewish world went, what? I thought we were safe. So the, I come back again.
2: Well, I wanted to come back because you, I yeah. I just mentioned that Hamas is not a, it, it, it's the tendency in the West to describe Hamas as, uh, we do the same thing with uh You know any 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 government or group that we don't like, right? It's just like Putin is just evil. There's no nuance there. Yeah, but Hamas has
0: received billions and billions and billions of dollars from support all over the world.
2: I'm not. I'm just. They don't have
0: hospitals. I'm just simply arguing for.
2: I'm simply arguing for the context, the the specific historical context from which Hamas was elected, and Mm. when they came to power is. Mm a response to a specific historical situation. But I think we should move on to the third demand uh, of the resolution, which is the right of return. And so you have a situation now where any any Jew abroad can move to Israel and basically live there and become a citizen. But refugees, descendants of refugees from the 1947 and 1949 um. Wars cannot. And so that last point, the the right of return of refugees to go back to like where their families lived for generations. Right.
0: So I want to once again remind us that more, almost more people, Arab Jews lost their lands when they had to run away. My former in-laws or my sister's in-laws like held onto the bottom of a train to get out of Syria and lost everything, Mm -hmm. clutching their front door key in their hand. And so if you're gonna talk about the right of return, you have to take into con- especially if it moves towards reparation, you have to take into concern all those Arab Jews who lost everything as well. So it's not just the palace, the, the Arab uh, uh, Arabs who left the state of Israel in 48, for whatever reason they left, and there's a lot of historical data about the many, many reasons why they might have left. They left, they lost everything, The people who won the war got to occupy their homes, I've lived in them, they're wonderful homes, you know, but, and, unless you're talking about reparations for the Jews, Arab Jews who lost their lands, again, you're doing a one-sided conversation. And I think this is where the area of, com- we're doing the same kind of conversations now with the Native American population, the reparations with the, with the, the, the African-American population, my fa- my family too benefited from the GI bill. And I know that my father, uh, African-American co-patriots who fought in world war two, when they came back to this country, they did not get those GI loans. And they did not, they had their, their <coughs> redlined. And so it's if you move towards reparation, what happens? Number one, you reconcile the fact that I no longer live where I used to live. And I have claim to where I used to live. Therefore, first acknowledge that I am in exile. And secondly, pay me back a little bit for what I've lost. This is the way forward. If you were to ask And for the return, the right of return, the entire world's population would shift mightily. You know, it's interesting in in Jewish law, in the Torah, it talks about once every 50 years is the jubilee year and uh, where the all the land gets is supposed to get returned to its original owners. And we all have understood, though, rabbinically, etc., that that is an aspirational part of Torah. It's not actually a something that could be carried out, actually, but it's aspirational. So, what do we mean by everybody gets to return that the land gets returned to its original owners? That's a profound question to answer through negotiation, and it forms the foundation of how Jews understand the the the. What is land? The Jews have been landless since 586 BCE. Do I wanna go back to Lithuania? No, I could, I suppose, except my land, my town doesn't exist anymore, but that's not the point. Where would the, the concept of right of return, how would that apply to every population on the planet that no longer lives in its home uh, or space of origin? Um, and so I just raised that, as uh, uh, of course, people should be recomp- compensated for what they lost. It'd be a lot cheaper to do that than build more rockets, right? But and it's a bigger picture. You would have to also talk about the right of return for my sister's in-laws who cannot go back to Syria.
2: And I, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh well, um, go ahead. Um, Wait a minute, it's my podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: your (laughs) podcast. You go ahead. I'm just messing with you, David. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So I, I think that's a good question. I think one of the questions that underlines that part of the resolution and the BDS movement is, is there a right for a Jewish nation to exist? One, one Jewish nation to exist, given the history of anti-semitism of pogroms of jew hatred of the holocaust and not just the holocaust of what happened so if all of those refugees came back you would be effectively you wouldn't have a jewish majority in the area so that's its own problem and it is and I, i agree with what jan said but i think that wars sadly have consequences and this is not one war it's several wars in which the arab's declared war on what was a compromise that was agreed to and do i do i think that things can go you can hit the the rewind button and things go back to the way they were i think that's absurd it's absurd here if we're talking about native americans that is not an option so the question is how do you create the most justice in the situation without hitting rewind, which you can't do. Jews can't go back to Europe. We can't go back to Arab countries. Everybody can't go back where they came from. That is not tenable. So I don't agree that that, I think that plank has some good conversation to have as part of an overall peace negotiation. But as a unilateral thing, I think it's just a a propaganda tactic.
2: All right. So, I mean, obviously I have a, slightly different take, but I guess my the, the what complicates it for me and my understanding in what you said is that that Jews abroad can come to, to to Israel. So there there is no complication there, right? So there is no no one was like wait a minute, if we let any Jew that we want come back to Israel, what if like all of them come back and then we don't have like sewers? Like those practical limitations that you're putting on it are only one side. It's only on the Palestinian side, not on the Jewish side. And so that's kind of a, that's where I would come down on that. Where like, that's what makes it problematic. You know what I mean? If it's just, you know, like there's wars, border changes, I could almost buy that argument, but not if, Based on one's perceived race or ethnic identity, you're basically inviting or not inviting people from all over the world. Um, I find that to be problematic. And I don't necessarily
1: think that, um, well, yeah, I'll just say that. um, It is complicated. I, I, I hear why it's problematic for you. I think that when the UN agreed to have the state of Israel, it was taking into consideration the special history of the Jewish people, and given that they had lived in lots of places. And,
2: and there is a that, that that demand is based on UN Resolution 194. So right. No, a, I understand. A, yeah. Yeah. So, you, and that's not for you. That's for our listeners. Right. <laughs> right. Trying, right. I'm not. <laughs> but there's also. I should also have you, said that at the top of yeah, the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. I might say something that sounds right, right, pedantic, right, right. like I right, think right, you right. don't know what you're talking about. Right, but right, it's basically right. to bring everyone along for the ride. Right. You might not totally know about UN resolution solution 194 so um all right we're we're almost out of time so let me just see here if there was (sighs) ah yeah i I wonder if we could just touch a little like bring it back home we've been talking a lot about and i didn't want oh i did want to say one more thing which is the reason why the resolution isn't calling for the return of people everywhere is because it's a Palestinian res- resolution for Palestinians written by Palestinians to address, like, their situation in the world. So I, I, that's what I wanted to bring back to what, to what you said. Like, it it makes perfect sense to me. Like, if, if someone robs me and, like, I go ask that guy for, like, my money back or seek rec- recompense for that, it's not an argument to say... Well, like, are you also advocating that everybody that got robbed should have that, or like, what about people that got robbed in like Syria? Like, it it doesn't follow for me logically. Like, if one person if one person thinks that they're oppressed and they have they have something a claim against that, and they want to seek justice, it doesn't seem to be that the demand should be or the onus should be on them to also advocate for everybody else in that situation.
1: No, it should be on the city council or whoever's considering the resolution.
0: Right, right. And, and I think also that's a little bit of a red herring because the um, to ask for the return of a group of people to another place is it does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in the negotiated um, plan so that everybody thrives. And if everybody who is part, who is at the table is not going to thrive, you've got a problem with your resolution, with how you're going to solve the problem. So it's not just, oh, the Palestinians still have the key to their front door, uh, those who uh, were forced to leave in 48, um, or who chose to leave in 48, depending on whose histories you you read. Um, and believe me, to the listeners, you should know that there's 12 different ways of understanding that exodus from of, of the Palestinians out of the out of the land. Um, it, it is true that there are people who would like to return to their homes, but it's not us. that that's a simple way of trying to describe a ridiculously complex process that you would have to institute to solve that problem. So it's not true that it's just the Palestinians asking to go back to their homes because that is plucking Something out of a huge web of conversations that have to take place, um, and so the we go back to what we said at the beginning. The problem is not that what the BDS uh, proposal was claiming. Am I going to get too many negatives in this? It there's a lot of agreement around some of, of around what BDS was claiming, and it was one sided. And when I say one sided, it doesn't recognize the historicity of the whole situation. It's very similar to somebody wanting what they want and I don't care how it affects you. Like that's kind of a, that's not how we want it. We don't sound how we raise our children. It's not how we encourage uh, uh, helpful conversations in the community. It can't be I win you lose that by the way, is the definition of the word pox, which means peace, which is a Roman word that means I win, you lose. <laughs> Whereas the word shalom and salaam come from the root wholeness. Everybody has to be at the table, otherwise it's the Roman understanding of how you attain peace. Yeah. And that is, so I wanna sort of.
2: So I'm not sure who loses in the situation, but I think we have to end it here. Right. You guys have been gracious with your time. I just want I say, to
0: close off by saying Yeah, that, if you have any final, yeah, feel free. That,
2: I, I just, I'm just conscious of the time because you both said you, you had one to, of the, to go.
0: One of the foundations of being raised from a Jewish perspective is how comfortable we are with dissonance. We can hold more than one truth in our heads at the same time. We can hold, let's say, Genesis and Darwin. And neither one of them—they're all like their own systems—but so we're raised with the uh, the uh, comfort level of mm-hmm. difficult problems and being comfortable with dissonance that there isn't a clear way forward, and that the dialectical process—that is the Jewish way of understanding how you talk about a situation—is does not matter who wins, but what's the next question, and that is foundational to who who Jews have been and continue to be. So to be curious about what the next question is, rather than what the answer was to the last one, is actually not how we think. We are comfortable with dissonance. For people who are not comfortable with dissonance, they want simplicity, they want a simple answer to a complex problem. And that is not how you solve complex problems. So I just wanna give a shout out for the ability to hold dissonance and be comfortable with that. Uh, and not try and scurry along to come up with a solution so that I feel better. That's, that's not what I'm here for. That's all I want to say.
1: Thank you. W- and I guess what I would like to say is that criticism of Israel, including pointed criticism of Israel, and particularly the occupation and the policies that are wrong, is not a problem. Like, that's necessary. The problem is that what creeps into it very quickly is an underlying uh anti-semitism that the jews control everything and the jews have all the power and the jews are controlling this side and that side i had a dear canadian friend of mine said oh the jews tell america what to do which is laughable but that creeps into the rhetoric over and over and over again and so my concern as a vermonter as a person we already jews are the majority the 57 percent or something like that of Religiously motivated hate crimes are against Jews, even though we're 2% of the population. So when you have this underlying anti-Semitism of Jewish power and Jewish money and Jews are telling America what to do, you've crossed right over into blatant anti-Semitism and Jew hatred and that puts my community at risk, whether it's coming from the far right, saying the Jews are really the secretly white people of color are all coming, or whether it's the left that are saying the Jews are secretly the super white people that are doing all the colonialist stuff. And so when you hold Israel up as the emblem of colonial white supremacist evil, then you're trafficking in anti-Semitism. And that is that is overlying or underlying or however you want it's part of this whole place and whenever you hear the rhetoric that's what comes up so as jewish people we are for we would love to work with people on how to address the issues in israel as soon as you're accusing us of genocide which is pointedly at jews because we're victims of genocide then there's never good we can't we can't have that conversation So I find that this kind of everybody going to their corners and yelling at each other is the least of all helpful ways of going at it. And while BDS on the website doesn't look like that, BDS in practice on college campuses is very much like that. And Jewish students are scared because they're experiencing ever-growing amounts of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic rhetoric. They're being told they can't be on student governments unless they say they don't support Israel. There's a whole lot of other things that are in the context into which this resolution enters the fray. And it's uh, naive or disingenuous to try to totally separate out the larger context of that from the details and so i think that enters into this conversation makes it harder to talk about because i'm not saying somebody is you're anti-semitic for being for bds that's not it at all a lot of jewish people support bds that's not the issue is that when you start to buy into certain rhetoric around israel and hold it up as the emblematic evil in the world you are back on the protocols of the elders of zion you're back on all every anti-semitic campaign that's ever happened. And just like African-Americans when, and I'll use African-Americans as an example, when they hear something racist, you know, they kind of recognize it. Even if I as a white person may not hear it as quickly as they do. But when every major Jewish organization in America hears that's really blatantly anti-Semitic, and the response of the left is, Oh, you Jews always do that. We don't need to listen to that. Um, That is not the way the left works with other groups of people. And it is certainly not the way the left should work with people who have been long-term allies on most of our crucial shared issues, on economics, on helping the poor, all those things. And so it is is—it's heartbreaking and it's scary when you're suddenly put into this category of evil, which uh, is out of all proportion to the situation. Mm-hmm. So, And that is not to minimize the situation. But it is certainly not the worst thing. If you look on the list of violent conflicts in the world right now, it doesn't even rank. And yet that's where all the emotional energy is. And I can't help but think the reason so many people who aren't involved in, uh, in the Middle East in any way uh, have such emotional reaction to it, but not to say other situations in the world that are happening that are worse. Um, But this is where it gets all the attention. And I believe that that is in large part motivated unconsciously by a kind of ambient anti-Semitism that's out there. So that's the part that makes it hard to talk about it, even if we go through every detail in that sheet. The experience of the Jews in Israel as well, but also the Jews in America, is it sounds a lot like what we've been accused of by genocidal people attacking us. And so Mm -hmm. it makes it very hard to just have a calm nuanced conversation so I, I just wanted to put that in the the mix because I think it's yeah, relevant
2: I appreciate that I have a um you know I wasn't sure how this conversation would go and also with three people yeah it doesn't track the same but basically I did have um and I if you guys ever you know if you want to come back I would love to actually have a more detailed conversation about anti-Semitism and about your experiences here and like even totally separate from sure. From the you know Israel and Palestine, I sure. think it, it, it'd be interesting for me to get your perspective on on what's happening sort of on the ground in Vermont. Sure, the, this podcast is really about Vermont issues, and the only reason why we're talking about this is because the city it, council it, <laughs> it, uh, yes. you know. But I, yes. I we're, we don't normally and and I had Wafik for who and, yeah. and he's in Vermont and yeah. there's a Ben and Jerry's thing and you know All so the things. We're, we're we're it's connected <laughs> here, um, but I, but I would also want to say that I I. I think that the other side to that, and I know that you're both aware of this, is that the conflation of Jews with the state of Israel is also used by pro-Israel opponent or pro-Israel advocates to silence critique of Israel, Mm. and that is also a real problem. So when I hear someone have a knee jerk reflection that says, "Oh yeah, oh BDS is just anti-Semitic," or it's bringing up all these anti-Semitic tropes or this and that, it's like, okay, well, we have to investigate that because I don't buy that at face value because maybe it is or maybe it isn't. But, like, there's nothing inherently anti-Semitic about BDS, in my opinion. Now, it might be utilized to such ends, but that is a different question. Thank you both so much for coming on. I I hope that we can continue to have a conversation because my... I think these conversations are more productive than um, two-minute stump speeches. A uh, nice city council. <laughs>